Uh, if you're new to Element Welcome, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you do not own one, we'd love for you to take one. You take it home and have it. If you forgot one, you can actually use one. On the communion tables throughout the room, there are these didn't see that coming booklets as they talked about. We'd like for you to take one with you. If you have never had daily devotions in here, there's going to be simple daily devotions, one verse, one question, and hopefully over the course of 16 weeks, you'll be in the habit of spending time with God every single day if you aren't already. If you do have a daily time where you spend with God, do this as well to be on the same page, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that goes along, so grab that. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on More and Events in Uversion. will come up by GPS in your smartphone. But during this series, all you're going to get is the gospel statement that we'll talk about in just a moment. You're going to get the verses we go through, some announcements, and, and a PDF link to that booklet as well. Usually you'll get all the notes in there, but there's too much to kind of throw in those. So right now, that's all you're going to get in your Uversion. We following? We doing good? First service, they were they were they talk a lot to say hi, but they are also very dead. And I don't know if that's because it's cold outside or what the deal is, but we'll see how this goes because I'm gonna need a lot of grace with today's message. So uh, my name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Genesis chapter six, verse five. It says, "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to live in the grace that you provide, that we would understand that you have covenanted with us, that you have called us into a life, and that we would live that life out in very practical ways, speaking of the good news of the gospel, that we would see the things that you are doing and speak of those in very tangible ways, and that you would gain great glory as your people live in great joy. Amen. Have a seat. All right, this is our third week in our series called Didn't See That Coming, where we want to recenter you this year on an understanding of the gospel. And when we speak of the word gospel in the church, it's not just this catchy phrase that TV preachers say, because I don't even think they even know what the word gospel means. They just kind of say it. The word gospel meant definitive good news about an event of some sort. And so when we speak about the scriptures and the gospel with the scriptures, we're talking about the person and the work that God was doing in Jesus from the foundation of the world. The gospel message is about our redemption and hope that's found in Jesus. So we're taking 16 weeks, as I said, with these journey guides. So again, you have the short daily devotions, community uh, questions, family questions, all to go through to kind of recenter us week by week on what this means to talk about the gospel in practical ways in our own words. So our prayer is that you would have a deeper understanding of who God is, what he has been doing throughout biblical history, and what he's been doing throughout the history of your own personal life as well. That God is calling and rescuing and redeeming and saving us. Our hope is that you will then be able to speak that truth and to other people's lives around you, and the gospel will transform your relationships and how you interact with people around you because we'll have an attitude that focuses on God in all things. And so we're also giving you these weekly gospel statements, that these good news statements that remind us of what he has been doing that cover the message in a really kind of a sentence short of way, sort of way. And so we're helping you figure out during the week. We want you to also put that into your own words. If you're in a gospel community, your gospel community can do that together as a community. Week one, we summed up the creation account of man with this statement. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, God came to restore and renew humanity to what he meant for it to be. Image bearers who love and serve him and others in humility. Last week, we looked at how we screwed all that up. We call this the fall. And the gospel statement was this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus himself has come into the broken 
brokenness humanity created. He died for what separated us from God, others, and life. He has promised to renew all things, including us. Now, my gospel community leader rewrote that as this. The gospel is the awesome news that Jesus came to restore relationship and to bring life. Where there is separation, he brings restoration. Where there is death, he brings life. He's renewing all things, including you and me. And so I think what you could do, if you want to rewrite in your own words, just use the word awesome. It's the awesome news. And be like, that's, that's mine. It's, I don't know. I'm not making fun of him. I think it was great. But anyway, there you go. So... Honestly, this series we're doing is probably one of the easiest and hardest that we've done. Six years ago, we took a year and a half and went through the entire book of Genesis. And this, the first part is kind of rehashing some of those things, putting those messages together. But it's also a little harder because we're trying to do it in a way that really centers and refocuses on the gospel day by day. And Element, again, we're all about Jesus. We're all about the gospel. But doing this in a really focused way sometimes becomes difficult. So what I want you to do now is open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start moving forward from where we left off last week. Today we're going to look at the first time the word grace is used in the scriptures and the word grace that moves into this word called covenant. And it centers on God working in this guy named Noah. In Noah. So you guys ready? Okay, first service I said that, nobody responded. So I'm like, all right, we're going to do it anyway. So Noah's Ark is one of our favorite stories that are some people's favorite stories in the scriptures today. We paint kids' rooms with like elephants and giraffes and they're hanging out the ark window. It's like, woohoo, even though the ark really only had one window, so it's not actually accurate. But here's some pictures off Pinterest. Someone is industrious, right? It's like, holy cow. Here's another one. It's like, yeah, little kids. Here's, that's a, here's another one. This is actually on a wall. You see the floor underneath it. That's on a, in a kid's room wall. It's like, oh, we're all hanging out. It's so great, which is really weird because Noah's Ark is one of the most morbid stories in the Bible. God kills everybody. Isn't that weird? No one draws the little bodies floating in the water around the ark. <laughs> it's like, hey, kids, how do you like this? It's just kind of weird, so... Yeah. In, anyway, uh, humanity exists kind of like this, right? Everybody has an expiration date. Uh, our metaphorical egg timer goes ding and, and we're done. In the story of Noah's Ark, God just really said, today everybody's egg timer is going ding and that's how it's going to work. So from last week where we were left off, God creates everything good. Uh, he calls this shalom and peace with him and others, everything in the right way. He creates it in tov, which means good. So harmony and goodness and grace. This is mankind's relationship with God and with one another and creation around him. He places man into this good creation that he makes. He gives man this wonderful grace to do anything in the garden that he wants to except disobey him because living with God means life and departing from him separation is death man because he's so brilliant or thinks he is does the one thing God says not to do and creation tumbles and it falls into sin Adam and Eve at this point they receive curses and promises but also the hope of redemption after the fall God promises through a woman I will send a promised child that will rescue and redeem mankind again Genesis 3.15 we call that the proto Evangelion, the preaching of the first good news of the first gospel. And so when Adam and Eve finally have their first child named Cain, they think that's the Messiah. I have just birthed the Messiah, which is how a lot of moms think when they have their first baby. It's like, oh, I just gave birth to God in the flesh. Everybody should worship my baby till they get two years old. And you're like, no, no, I just gave birth to the spawn of Satan. We know. 
So Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived. Genesis reminds you, it's going back to the understanding that men and women make babies, that the rest of creation is producing after their own kind. So does Adam and Eve, but we're still made in the image of God. Adam and Eve, in this idea, were made by God. Everyone else becomes a descendant, and that's important to understanding when we talk about the idea of sin being inherent in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says... For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's about who we are in. In Psalm 58, verse 3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the idea that we are born into sin. We have a propensity to run away from what God calls us to and towards sin all the time. So it says, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This can be translated literally as, together with God I have made a man. And this goes back into the, what connects with kind of last week and stuff, that, that she was made from a man, God made a man. Now she says, I made a man. In the ESV, it's a really nice way of translating what she says, because really, it's really a bit arrogant in the Hebrew text. Jonathan Edwards believed this passage should be translated as, I have gotten a man, the Lord. She really says, God made a man, and so did I. I am made in God's image. I'm just like him. And she thinks her child is going to fix the world. So, so far, if you just look at the woman in the book of Genesis, she has tried to control her husband, then she tries to control her own sin, and now she thinks she's going to fix all those problems with her baby, Cain. And then you get to Adam, and, and if you look at Adam specifically, he just stands there a lot of the time, like a bump on a log going, okay, we'll see how this turns out. That's like Adam. He needs to step in and lead his family, but he doesn't do it. Then you get verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. In verse 2, there is no, she conceived and she bore, which makes a lot of commentators think that Abel is actually a twin. They didn't know he was coming. And so it's like a late night infomercial. You thought you were done, but wait, there's more. Abel. Right? Abel's name can be breath or nothingness. And the text seems to indicate that they almost dismiss him as he comes out, because they're so focused upon Cain. Now, the precious little boy, Cain, is going to go to go on to murder his brother Abel. So, yeah, not the Messiah. Not the Messiah. And they didn't see that coming. Right? This, and this is one of the problems people have with the Bible today. And it's something I actually love, is its honesty. It's honesty. Too many people talk about how bloody the book is or how inappropriate certain things are in the Bible. But the Bible is just detailing who man is. It's detailing all of our stupidity and doesn't shy away from it. And we just read it for what it is. I think we could see our own stupidity in it and also God's wonderful grace. And here you have to understand, you see Cain on his worst day ever. And that is what gets reported to you for the rest of eternity. That's what we know of this guy. Imagine if all we knew about you in your life was your most embarrassing moment or your most evil decision or your most evil thought. And that's all anybody ever knew about you. That's not a happy thing to really think about it. So what happens here is Cain's going to run away after killing his brother. And he starts another family line. He builds a city. And this is essentially where the storyline leaves Cain in his life. But you also see that God is good. Because God comes to Cain and he promises to care for the forgotten like God always does and God's going to watch out for Cain. If I go to Genesis 4.25, because we're going back to where Adam and Eve are at this point. Genesis 4.25, and Adam knew and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
And here you begin to see the tonal change in Genesis because she no longer says, look, I'm like God. I just gave birth to the Savior of the world. What Eve now does in these words is she's humbly receiving the child as a gift from God. And that tells you that she's learning. Adam and Eve are learning because the gospel continues to show that God is patient with us, just like he's patient with Adam and Eve. And that's not something we saw coming. And at this point, it doesn't mean they only had three kids. They probably had lots of kids, especially if twins can be in the mix. But Genesis is focusing on particular people to move the story and narrative forward. Seth's name, it can mean many things, but in its roots, it has this idea of foundation, that God is setting up a new line that's going to come through this guy. In the Talmud, in Genesis Rabbah 20.29, it says, With him the world was founded anew. It says, to Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And this shows the humbleness that Seth is now living in. Because Enosh means man, kind of like Adam was called man, but it has an, this focus on the frailty of who man is, that we are nothing without God. And then it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So when all is going wrong, when brothers killing brother, when chaos is running out of control, at that time, men began to call on God. And calling on God is this understanding of prayer. It's done in the understanding of our own frailty and also the awareness of our full dependence upon who he is. Then you get to Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis chapter 5, you'll get at least 1,600 years of human history, probably a whole lot more, because the words used for begat and father of can mean ancestor of. And it takes you through a whole bunch of years to get you to this guy called Noah. Genesis Genesis 529, if you want to flip there. We're going to go really fast today through a whole bunch of stuff. The guy doing a video this morning says, you are talking way too fast, but deal with it. Okay, Genesis 529. When Lemek had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. So Genesis 5 is to get you from Adam to Noah. It's 10 listed generations. It might have been more, but it's trying to say this is the perfect time to get to this place where God is going to do something new again. It's a critical turning point in history. After Noah, you will have 10 generations that go from Noah to Abraham. Another critical turning point in history. So he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, when Adam and Eve fall, God makes a couple promises. You're going to toil and the work from your hands is going to be very hard. And so now Noah's dad has no, well, his wife has Noah. And, and he says what? The same thing Eve said. Oh, my son's the Messiah. He's going to save us all from all of our problems. He says, this one shall bring us relief from the curse, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Little did he know that, yeah, in death, that, that's what's going to happen because everything's getting taken here. Now jump to verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, so when he's good and established, he finally paid off that second mortgage. His 401k is fully funded. He's ready to go. It's time to have some kids. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He probably had more kids than this. It just focuses again on people to move this narrative where it needs to go. So after the passing of all these millennia, you come to one guy who followed and loves God. And it wasn't Noah. It's a guy named Enoch. It's in chapter 5. You, you can read it. But God in Noah is going to do something brand new again. At the time of Noah, the earth is just messed up. Some people will say the earth is so messed up that you have demons having sex with humans and making babies. But the Bible doesn't say that. Okay, it doesn't say that. Actually, the Bible says that angels don't have baby-making parts. I just call this, I watched the X-Files and ate some MSG and smoked some crack and dropped acid, watched Scooby-Doo and tried to interpret the Bible. It's not how it's supposed to work. 
when Genesis 6 comes around, there are all these stories that are probably handed down by the patriarchs to different Hebrews, and so they knew what Moses is talking about. And because we don't, we just go really crazy and weird. What Moses writes is this, Genesis 6, 1. When the man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, so the daughters of men, were attractive, so they're pleasant and made in the right way, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, in, according with the scriptures, if you go in context of how the scriptures speak, sons of God is probably just a nice way to refer to the line of Seth. Those who were supposed to follow God, those who came through him. Daughters of men would refer really to the line that comes through Cain. And in this, it's not saying that it's uh, demons having sex with humans making Halloween babies. That's not what it's saying. John Calvin wrote this. It was therefore based in gratitude in the posterity of Seth to mingle themselves with the children of Cain. What we're being told is that life is moving forward on the earth. And people aren't listening to God. And they're not walking with God. And it's so bad that even those who claim to know God and walk with Him don't really do it. Ooh, sounds like today, doesn't it? Sounds just like today. We have to let Hollywood stop dictating our theology and actually have good theology. The, the point here when you get to Genesis, if you have this cycle, born, live, sin, die, born, live, sin, die, born, live, sin, die, the world's getting worse as men rebel against God. And then you get to Noah, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, theologians will call this total depravity. Our thoughts, our actions, our lives, everything is corrupted and stained by sin from the fall that we talked about last week. Now, total depravity, it does not mean absolute depravity. Absolute depravity means we can never do anything good. Total depravity means that our motives are all stained by pride. It's all pride, everything. We always have this propensity to run towards the things that we are not supposed to and to stop listening to God in our lives. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And that wording is kind of really tricky in the Hebrew text, but it means this idea that God is sobbing over the sin of mankind. That God sobs and cares about it even when mankind didn't. It's not something you saw coming. We like to blame our sin on other people, say it's everybody else's fault, we pawn it off, but God is the only one who seems to grieve over it and cares about it. We will call things good when they are evil. God looks at our sin and he is heartbroken. It means that God cares more about our lives than we do. And that is crazy, that God is such an intensely personal God. And people today will try and say things like, oh, all gods are the same no matter what religion you look at. I don't think they understand what other religions teach about God. Because there is no other religion where God reveals himself in this way, that he is involved in our condition, and he cares and he feels and he's going to do something about it. So, it says this, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And we read this and we'll think, oh, but that's so cruel, because we're just like those people. That's why we want to say that. If someone was only evil to you all the time, every single day, you would want them God. God still gives them 120 years, and God will offer them salvation by sending this guy called Noah. Now, why Noah? People say, oh, because Noah was righteous. No, Noah wasn't. In context of what it says, is only evil all the time. That would include Noah. Then you get to chapter 6, verse 8, which says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is the first occurrence of the Hebrew word grace in the Bible. It means acceptance in the eyes of. God gave Noah grace. The first thing Noah gets is grace. That's God's answer to the problem. Not Cain, not Abel, not Seth, not Adam, not Eve, not the sons of God and the daughters of men. It is grace. And then you get verse 9, which says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What comes first, the grace or the righteousness? The grace. The grace comes first. Grace brings the effect of he was righteous. The cause is grace. Unmerited favor. As I always like to say, what's Noah like before the grace? We don't know. Could have been a pervert downloading porn on the internet. Could have been a bad dad, smack his wife around, stealing from his boss, rides his camel around while texting on his phone, running people off the road. He's just a dude. He's just a dude, worthless and ordinary, and God gives him grace. Why? The same reason God gives grace to us. Because God himself is good. We know that after the whole ark and flood thing, Noah's going to get off this boat. He's going to go plant a vineyard. And after he plants this vineyard, he's going to make and ferment these grapes into wine. He's going to get drunk and pass out naked in his tent. He is just a dude. Okay? It's funny, right? But he's, he's just a dude. But I think he still loves God. And God gives him grace. And so God's going to flood the earth and take care of much of mankind's sin towards one another. People get highly offended by this and they say, I just wish God was fair. I can't believe that. You don't wish God was fair. Because if God was fair, he would have flooded, killed everybody and said, that's fair, I'm done. But that's not what he does. See, God's not fair. God is good, and God is compassionate, and God is loving. And this becomes the pattern for the good news of the gospel. It's why Jesus came. Because the pattern is born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Born, live. Jesus comes. You can be born again, and you get to live forever. That's the beauty of the gospel. God chose Noah because Noah is a knucklehead and horrible, and God has a sense of humor. God has grace for us. And this is good news. If you feel sinful and you feel lost, like life has no meaning, like no one loves you, God says, I will give you grace. That's the story of Noah and the flood. It's not about the flood of the animals or two by two or anything else. It's that God's grace changes things. It changes lives. It changes us, just like it changed Noah's life. No one ever saw that coming. And you probably heard the story. Noah builds a boat, preaches about God's grace for 120 years. No one listens to crazy old man Noah. The flood comes. Everything is taken out on the earth. If you've seen the movie, no one nowhere falters and goes crazy like in the movie. I'm sure that he got discouraged at time, but he still trusted God. God has Noah's family get in the ark. He seals them in. Rain, water, floods. Everything's destroyed. Waves. They're on this thing for about a year. They start checking to see if the land is dry. After that, flip your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, where Noah will get off the boat. And the first thing Noah does when he gets off this boat is not take a shower, though that's what I would have done. Because if you're on a something the size of an ocean liner full of animals in your family, I need some me time <laughs> after a year. <laughs> Genesis 8.18 gets off the boat. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What Noah does is he gets off the ark and he worships God. He names his sin. He confesses his sin. His first day, his first priority is worship of God. And God did not command Noah to do this. Noah does this of his own initiative. 
Verse 21 says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, which directly reflects back to Genesis 6, where God is grieved in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And man, for the first time you see in these chapters, is beginning to live in a way that reflects the nature in which he was created, as an image bearer of God. God is glorified. Man's beginning to truly live again. He's no longer destroying himself. For a very short time. For a very short time. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 9. All these things go right in line together. I know we're going through a lot of stuff today, but you'll be glad as we start next week that I did this this week. Okay, uh, Genesis 9 verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. And so you finally get from grace to this thing called covenant. And this is very important. We call this the Noahic covenant. And your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. There might be a monsoon, there might be fires and then rains and mudslides like in Santa Barbara, but don't worry, you won't be stuck in a horrible movie called Waterworld with Kevin Costner. It's not going to happen. And, and what you see here is something that no one would have ever saw coming. The all-powerful God who makes everything in the universe makes a covenant, an agreement with his creation. Today, we will narrowly define covenant as an agreement between two people. For God, this becomes the basis of his relationship with us. There's two kinds of covenants in the ancient world. The first one's called a unilateral covenant. That's made between a more powerful party and a less powerful party. And there's a bilateral covenant. That's made between equal parties. Like, we sell a house to one another. We sell a car to one another. Something like that. In a unilateral covenant, a more powerful party is always after something he does not have, that he doesn't have. So it would be like water rights or grazing lands or rite of passage or getting something like that. You've got to understand, any covenant that God makes with mankind is a unilateral covenant. There's a more powerful party who is God, and there's a less powerful party which is us. So the question must become, what does God get out of a covenant with mankind? What does he not have? that he really wants, that he would enter into this for. Because again, God owns everything. Everything is his. We know what Israel gets. We know what we get. Like Israel gets deliverance in the Exodus, which we also understand is the meaning of redemption and what that looks like. We get a way of life that makes sense, a community, an identity, a value, a destiny. But what does God get? I mean, God knows the human race. He knows the heartache, the ingratitude, the sin, the darkness in all of us. What does God get out of a covenant? Because God is going to show his glory and his good, which we didn't see coming. But God's also going to bless and love and pour out all the grace and goodness of his infinite heart to his people. What does God get? God gets rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn little sons and daughters that he chooses to love. And again, that's not something we saw coming because in our economy, that doesn't make sense. Why would somebody enter into a covenant he never had to? Because God's full of grace. That's why. That's why. This shows the goodness of who he is to bring us back into relationship again. We are lost. We are broken. We are on our own. God seeks us down, loves us, and brings us back into covenant with him again because he is that good. And that should make us humble. That should make us humble because he is simply that good. There's This covenant is called unlimited and unconditional. It's for all time. And we talk about the gospel, this heralding of this good news. It's an understanding that goes back to the idea of covenants and grace. 
God's covenants, no matter what form they take, are never divorced from the God who makes those covenants. Noah and all that has taken place that we looked at today is a precursor to understanding God's covenant of grace. God covenants in Genesis 3, I will send a redeemer. I will promise to do this thing. He covenants here with Noah. Aaron Chalmers writes this. He says, his covenant with Noah, he says, establishes the basis or foundation for the story. God's commitment to creation, in particular, the preservation of life on earth. It establishes the parameters of the story. God's activity reaches out to embrace not only humanity, but also the created animals of the earth and provides an anticipation of the conclusion of the story of redemption. God's judgment on sin, salvation of the righteous, and renewal of creation. Next week, we'll get to this thing where, you, where you'll see Abraham's covenant. And it all culminates into this new covenant of where Jesus comes and atones for our sins. He offers us life. He clothes our shame just like God clothed Adam and Eve after the fall. It all takes place in Jesus. And if there's anything I can get you to understand throughout the course of didn't see that coming, is that the big idea of all the story is Jesus. The big idea isn't Noah or his sacrifice or the boat and the floods and Adam and Eve. The story of Noah was to point to Jesus as all things should because Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice that brings about true and lasting peace between God and mankind. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't need to experience a worldwide flood. We don't need to sacrifice animals to atone for our sin because Jesus did it with his own blood. Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering, just like Noah's offering when he got off the boat. In Romans chapter 12, it says, our lives are meant to be lived as living sacrifices. Our lives are meant to be pleasing aromas to who God is. But that begins in our understanding that God has offered us grace because he is full of love and he covenants with us so that we would live and walk as his image bearers in this world. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says this interesting line. It says, while they're on the boat, it says, God remembered Noah. And some people misunderstand that. Like, oh, was God off playing golf? And he's like, oh, dang it, I left that guy on the water. I better go take care of that. That's not what it means. And the Hebrew word for remember there, it means you go and you act in kindness towards someone. God goes and he acts in kindness towards Noah. And how does he do that? It leads him to the place of covenant. That's where it leads. We have to understand that God remembers us. God acts in kindness towards you and me. So we as a people, when we understand that, should also live like we we remember Him as well. God calls His people to remember Him. Because remembering Him, we remember what He did in covenants and grace. And that should shape our lives that obedience results. And obedience is not a bad word. Obedience is a beautiful word, but it has to start with the understanding first of who God is. God didn't leave us in our fallen state. He comes and still offers us grace. So my gospel statement for you this week is this, and I, it's, it's longer than the other weeks because I'm the king of run-on sentences. So this is, <laughs> this is how this goes. The gospel is the good news that though the inclination of our hearts are bent towards ourselves and our own glory, Jesus has come to us in grace and love to restore us, to live for his glory, and invites us into his mission, which focuses us outward from our own lives to live in and help usher in the kingdom of God. Now, first service, totally butchered this. Okay, but I want to hear. I'm going to let you guys do this. Okay, see how well you do. But I guarantee I'll give you an A for effort. Okay, so here we go. The gospel.
You may think it was funny, but that was like a million times better in first service. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to understand, okay? Born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Or with Jesus, born, live, sin, be born again, live forever. That's the beauty of the gospel. God comes to us in grace. And again, like I said, if you are here today and you feel like your life has no meaning, you've been running it into the ground, God says, I walk for you grace because I love you. That's the beauty of the gospel. This is what brings us to talk about communion every week as we do. It's where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people to bring us back in because he is a God of covenants and grace and love. And he wants to show us what goodness truly is and the goodness is what he has done. And so that's why we invite you to that. It's, it's not something we pass around a room. It's a response to what he's done. You actually have to get out of your seat and go do it because it's meant to be a response to his goodness and his grace. The band's going to come up. And as they do, I'm going to invite you guys, I said, to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today where you feel like your life is falling apart and you don't understand really what's going on around you, they would love to pray with you. They would love to spend some time just talking through some of that with you because God is good. If you've never understood grace and what grace means and what grace looks like, they'd love to talk to you about that because our God is great and good and kind and longs to bring us back home again. We cannot run from a God who created all things. He will chase us down. He will remind us of His grace and His goodness because He is simply that good. How about we become a people who begin to start living in that grace and kindness and then be able to start speaking about the story, the good news of that grace to those we come into contact with? Because that is what speaking the gospel means. It means talking about the good news of what God has done to rescue and redeem us. No matter where we've been, no matter where we are, taking our, all of our stupidity we've had in our entire life, just like you see throughout the scriptures with Adam and Eve and Cain and Noah's dad and Noah himself, you continue to see that even in the midst of that, it is God who rescues. We cannot save ourselves. And so we trust Jesus for our life and our salvation and surrender everything to him because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would take us as a people and you would humble us so we would live in the grace that you have provided. That we would surrender all of our lives to you as Savior, Lord, God, King, Redeemer, Hope, Life, everything. And that we would then begin to live out our lives in ways that reflect the goodness of who you are. That we would speak of the good news that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus himself. And we'd speak of that, not being afraid to say those words, but fully understanding that that is the only good news the human race has ever had. That you have sought us, you have bought us, that you have brought us in because of your own goodness and kindness. And we ask that as we begin to understand more and more of the gospel, that we'd be able to speak these words in the reality of the cultural context in which we reside. That no matter what people are going through in their lives around us, we'd be able to speak of the goodness of the gospel and how you change things. And so today, remind us of your amazing grace over us 
the sweet sounds that you have spoken and that we again would also speak those sweet sounds. That we'd speak of your amazing love, amazing grace, that you have set us free to love and worship and honor you in all things. Teach us to live out your grace. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.